0: Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Saviour, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our home. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they found. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy, and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslairs, for hormones, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, Which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, with honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, St Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before only, that thereby them might war swore a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck Of whom is and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As ever we trust that the Lord will have given own special blessing to the reading of his infallible Word. Well, this evening we are beginning studying the first letter of Paul to Timothy. And God willing, it's my intention that we shall also study to Timothy and Titus in due course. And these three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And this may perhaps be not only because they are all addressed to some early Christian pastors but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. Both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith and both of them had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete and Paul worked to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies we will see the practical information conveyed by these epistles on a variety of subjects. We shall see the guidance given on public worship, guidance on the selection and qualifications of church leaders, and what to expect from a pastor. We shall see how sin in the church is to be confronted and we shall consider the role of women in churches a very topical subject in modern times. We shall see how widows in the church are to be cared for and also how to handle the money. But these pastoral epistles do not confine themselves solely to practical matters. They also convey vital doctrinal truths about the Scriptures, about salvation and about the Saviour. And so I trust that our studies in these epistles will help us all to serve God in whatever capacity we find ourselves in our churches. Well at the outset it behoves us just to spend a, a short time acquainting ourselves with Timothy and his relationship with the Apostle Paul. The first we hear of Timothy or Timotheus is in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16 and verse 1. And we read there how Paul went to Darby and Lystra and that, and I quote, A certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess, and believed. But her father was a Greek or gentleman. We're given no specific details of Timothy's conversion, but we do know that he had a godly upbringing. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, verse 5, I will come to that in in a few months' time. Paul refers to the unfeigned faith that dropped in Timothy's grandmother, who was named Lois. And also in his mother, whose name was Eunice. Timothy's father was a Gentile, but this did prevent his mother and probably his grandmother from teaching Timothy from the Scriptures from his childhood. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 15, Paul wrote this about Timothy, that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what an encouragement this is for us to teach our children from the Scriptures, from their earliest days. As I said earlier, we're not given any specific details of Timothy's conversion, but it's not inconceivable that it was part of the fruit of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Timothy's hometown of Lystra on Paul's first missionary journey as we it in Acts chapter 14. What we do know for certain is that Timothy accompanied Paul for perhaps 15 years as the Apostle's close companion and was accounted his son in the faithful. Though he remained behind with Silas and Berea after Paul to Athens, he caught up with Paul later and was with him in Corinth. Paul sent him to Macedonia, but he accompanied Paul on Paul's return journey to Jerusalem. He was with Paul when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, when he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, when he wrote his epistle to the Philippians, the Colossians, and his epistles to the Thessalonians. It was also with Paul when Paul wrote his letter to (coughs) Philemon. And we also know that Timothy was sent by Paul to places such as Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi and Ephesus where he now resided and was there as some sort of troubleshooter. And we know all these things from the book of Acts and from Paul's epistles. So, we can see that Timothy was someone that Paul trusted as much as any man he trusted. Someone in whom he had confidence in the Lord. And his first epistle to Timothy was with the aim of helping him to maintain order in the churches and to continue to refute false teaching. Now it was doubtless intended that although the letter was addressed to Timothy personally, it would be made available to others at Ephesus as well. The letter commences with this introduction, Paul, an Apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's part of that introduction that leads us to believe that Paul intended the epistle to be more widely read, such as us here this evening. Timothy already knew that Paul was an apostle. He, he didn't need to be reminded of that fact, but others who might be the apostles would surely recognise or, or ultra recognise the apostolic authority of the writing. As we shall see, there were those at Ephesus with whom Timothy was contending. Men who opposed the gospel of God's grace. And Paul's letter was surely intended to support Timothy in his battle for the truth. Paul was an apostle and therefore what he wrote had the stance of God upon him. Paul had been appointed an apostle by God's command. He hadn't taken this authority to himself. He had been given it by divine ordination. Paul acted and spoke as God's ambassador. And thus there is no justification whatsoever for anyone to claim that his letters display personal preference rather than divine guidance. And the importance of that point in our own way will become more apparent as we travel through this epistle. We see how Paul links together God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of his divine commission. And Paul may have thus alluded to the deity of the Lord Jesus to gainsay those at Ephesus who question that. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that is non-negotiable. You see his offering for the sins of his people would have been ineffective if he was tainted with sin in any way. And only someone who was divine could have had no sinful nature. And we see how Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the hope of believers. Reminding us that we were once hopeless sinners. All those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are now indwelt by the Spirit of Christ look forward with confidence to that day when our hope will be realized when Christ owns us before his Father as his own redeemed people. As Paul pointed out to the Colossians, we are the people to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of, you, of God. Is Christ the hope of everyone who is here this evening? Are you just in him alone for your salvation? The scripture, speaking of our Saviour, tells us this. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The Lord Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the sinners and the people. Timothy was accounted by Paul to be his own son in the faith, as also was Titus. Verse 4 of chapter 1 of Paul's letter to Titus sees Paul addressing his epistle, to Titus, my own son, after the common faith. And so we see this special bond that exists between Paul and these two men whom he regarded as his sons in the faith. The Greek words used by Paul in his letter to Timothy accentuate the legitimacy of Timothy's spiritual birth. And also, there's a strong influence that Paul was in some way instrumental in his salvation. Now, what would any spiritual father wish for his spiritual sons and daughters? but they, they should know grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Timothy would need all three of those things in his difficult pastoral work at Ephesus, and they can only be received as a divine gift. <clears throat> when Paul prays that Timothy would receive grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's once more testifying, pointing to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having completed the introduction to his letter, which is a much briefer introduction than those in his epistles to churches, we see that Paul immediately focuses on the problem which Timothy was then facing at Ephesus, namely the problem. Of false teaching. He wrote these words As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do I. all and Timothy had been together at Ephesus before Paul left him behind when he went to Macedonia. Before he left, Paul had begun the necessary task of identifying and expelling from the church such as were guilty of false teaching. In our next study we will see this when we come across two characters called Laminas and Alexander, one of whom is also mentioned in 2 terms. What Paul is pointing out now is that Timothy needed to continue what he, Paul, had begun and to oppose those who opposed the true gospel, to charge them that they should teach only that which was true doctrine. Some commentators believe that these false teachers had arisen from within the church that they may even have been elders, else how otherwise would they have been able to exert so much influence over those in the church? From Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, we can see that when Paul was at Miletus, a town not far away from Ephesus, he summoned the elders from Ephesus and gave them all a charge regarding the church and verses 28 to 31 of that chapter, that's Act 20, recalled the words that Paul said to them. He said, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous walls enter in among you, not sparing in the flock, Also, of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to rule everyone night and day with tears." You see, Paul knew that churches would always be faced with the dangers of false teachers. Some of them might infiltrate the church from without, but also those who will arise from within. And you know, we can see that this has proved to be true throughout history. If you were to examine the origins of many Christian cults, you'll find that they invariably began with someone in an Orthodox church perverting the true gospel, and attracting followers from within the true church to join them in their apostasy. Those who are overseers of God's people must ever be on their guard against any false teaching. The pulpit, as we say, must be guarded. Any unorthodox teaching, not left unchallenged. Now, of course, it's not just overseers who are to be on their guard against false doctrine. Since we know from church history that overseers themselves can be responsible for its introduction. All of God's people have a responsibility to watch out for any departure from the gospel of God's grace, not to be confused with differences over what we might term secondary issues on which true brethren can and do agree to differ in love. Now, it appears that the province of Ephesus went beyond doctrinal and included fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. There were many spurious writings in existence in the early church and it's felt that at least some of those writings were circulating in Ephesus. For example there was a man named Philo who used to he used to allegorize and harmonize with philosophy and Judaism. And some people in the early church will be a little astray by his writings, since some of them seem to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, but in fact over fables. And there were other Jewish writings which made much of family trees, genealogies, the apocryphal book of Jubilees being an example of this and such. Genealogical issues led to controversy between unconverted Jews and Jewish Christians. The fables contained in the spurious writings, together with genealogical issues, were the subject of much debate. But such debate was of no value. And any real spiritual teacher should rather have been seeking to edify believers by building them up in their faith. And encouraging them to live godly Christian lives. We shall see what a big problem fables and genealogies presented at that time as we go through 1 2 Timothy and Titus. Letters written within a few years of each other. That to Titus have probably been written between the two letters to Timothy. For example, in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 we see a warning against profane old wives' fables. In Titus 1, verse 14, we will see Paul stress the importance of not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And in Titus 3, verse 9, we will see something very similar to that which we have before us this evening. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and vain." Now, before we move on to consider further that which should have been taught by true spiritual leaders, it behoves us to ask ourselves this question. Do we spend any significant amount of time speculating about matters of little or no importance? Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that many of us might spend a lot of time Debating how many angels would dance on a picnic, as perhaps some have done in the past. But I think it's fair to say that some believers might spend rather too much time debating, talking about matters which will neither improve their Christian lives nor the Christian lives of those whom they may buttonhole for the purpose of debating their pet. Paul wrote this, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfaithful. And opinion is divided as to what is meant by the end of the commandment. We know from the Epistle to the Galatians that love is the fulfilling of the law. Some feel that this is what Paul is referring to here. If those claiming to be spiritual teachers really loved those whom they sought to teach, then this would limit the subject matter of their teaching to that which alone was anything. However, others feel that what is translated in our authorized version as the end of the commandment, but also have been translated as the goal of our instruction, or the goal of the charge. Taking this view, what Paul would be saying is this. That, unlike the false teachers who were concerned with self promotion, the aim of godly instructions would be so less. Their sole aim would be the spiritual welfare of those to whom they minister, wishing to instill in those they teach the necessity of charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith and faith. This would be the truth of a godly ministry and would also be evidenced in godly ministers themselves. False teachers will lead astray those who listen to them. But godly ministers will preach the gospel of God's grace, hoping to see in those they teach that charity that can only result from a true experiential knowledge of the grace of God. Blessed the hearts which have been cleansed by being regenerated Believers with un consciences, love, hypocritical faith, will be charitable people. They will be loving people. Motivated by love for their Savior and for their fellow believers. The false teachers at Ephesus would have had hearts uncleansed by the gospel of God's grace. Their consciences must of necessity have been guilty consciences. And their faith without only have been pretend or a feigned faith. Therefore, whatever they taught would have been of no spiritual benefit and certainly would have been the means of promoting true Christian law. These fool's teachers were egotistical. They were motivated by a desire to be well thought of. They had swerved, they had turned aside under vain generally, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say what they say. where are they found. Vain jangling is an apt description, is it not, of pointless discussion? And if any of us have been guilty of this in the past, I trust that we'll seek to remedy it from now on. However, discussions which have true spiritual value are to be commended. Notice that Paul speaks of those who desire desire to be teachers of the law covered in the prestige which they believed accompanied a teaching role. The humility which should be the mark of any new report of God to teach his people was absent, missing. Those whom God has appointed to teach his people ought ever to be aware of their own shortcomings and will always be more concerned with what God thinks of them than with what men think of Those who desired to be teachers of the law, Ephesus possessed a fatal flaw. They had no true grasp of those subjects which they purported to teach, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they are from. They had no true appreciation of God's intention when He gave the law to Moses and His relationship with the gospel of His grace, and they have their successors. You may be aware that down the centuries there have been rabbis who have debated and interpreted the law to the nth degree. For example, it's been reported that there is a rabbinical teaching that says it's permissible on the Sabbath day to carry a baby, but if that baby has a stone in his hand then that would constitute working on the Sabbath. You can imagine the debates you could have on that type of thing to what point? Does such speculation about the law lead to an improvement in our love of God or our fellow men? Now, Paul didn't want anyone who read his letter to Timothy to think that in criticising those who desire to be teachers of the law, he had no respect for the law himself. He wrote, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Paul told the believers that Rome when he wrote to the them, he told them this the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and
1: good. But
0: ah, its main purpose was to bring sin to light and to condemn evildoers. In the letter to the Galatians, we are told that the law was added because of transgressions. Its purpose being to reveal to men and to women and to boys and girls their sinfulness. It was designed to show them that they were guilty sinners before a holy God and thus to guide them to seek Christ with him in the only way possible through faith in a redeemer to come. And so the law highlighted people's depravity, showing them the impossibility of their being able to live that perfect life that God requires. And now we see that Paul writes this that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for menstealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound law. Our Saviour has redeemed believers from the curse of the law, And thus we are no longer under its jurisdiction. Believers are led by the Spirit and are not under the law. Though, I must say very carefully, that doesn't mean that we have a license to sin. Now the sin listed by Paul, are not exhausted. But we might term them representative of all those wickednesses of which people are capable of. They include sins against God and they include sins against fellow men. Now we couldn't imagine could we that anyone would ever dare to attempt to condone the murder of parents. And yet we are only to work with clergymen who dare to condone that which is listed alongside, namely the defilement of men with men. Now I'm not suggesting that those false teachers at Ephesus talk that homosexuality was acceptable. But we can all see how false teachers in churches in Britain in our generation are doing that very thing. Increases in homosexual behaviour have heralded the ruin of empires in the past and we should expect no less when the so-called state church seems to condone such behaviour as opposed to condemning it. It's clearly condemned in both the Old and the New Testaments, despite some people suggesting that it was an Old Testament precept to which New Testament believers are no longer subject, rather like dietrios. Well, it's always been a grievous sin in God's eyes, and it always did. And any teaching to the contrary must of necessity always be contrary to sound doctrine. Well, as I said, the sins this divine were not exhausted. They are representative of all those wickednesses of which people are capable. I've spoken about homosexuality specifically because it seems to me to be a particular problem today. Though it also has to be said that the current promotion and acceptance of transsexuality may overtake the promotion of same sex relationships. However, we have to be careful not to minimise God's hatred. Of those other sins mentioned by Paul. Adultery has always been more acceptable in society than sodomy, but poor are just as much to be condemned as are murderers and kidnappers and those who commit perjury. Anything at all that is evil, that destabilizes society, is contrary to God's law, and sinful behavior toward one fellow man is a consequence of people having no proper. God and for his laws, the unholy, of pain, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, those who have little regard for God, these are they who will have little regard for other people. The law is used lawfully to condemn such lawbreakers, but to believers, the purpose of the law is to serve as a schoolmaster or pedagogue. To bring them to Christ. Once he's done that, it's served its purpose as far as salvation is concerned. It's an essential part of the gospel since before we can receive the good news of the gospel, we need to hear about the bad news of our sin. Now we see that Paul wrote of the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And the gospel is. Glorious, because it highlights God's glory. It reveals his attributes and his holiness and his hatred of sin and his love for lost sinners and his mercy. Any gospel which omits the law and sin cannot be said to be the glorious gospel of the blessed God. God's glorious attributes will also have been omitted. And God is to be blessed not only for what he is himself, but also for the grace which he has shown to foreign people such as ourselves. Now Paul con- considered the gospel of God's grace to have been committed to his trust, meaning that he had received the commission from God to claim that God had entrusted him to tell others of the grace which had been shown to him. As we shall see in our next study of 1 Timothy, Paul was put into the ministry. But it isn't only those in the ministry, you know, who are entrusted with the gospel. Can we not say that all believers should be ready, always, to give an answer to everyone who asks us the reason of the hope that is in us. Well, we've come to the end of our first study of lung Timothy, and I'm that we have seen the importance of sound ministry. Those who teach God's people should be humble, seeking to glorify God rather than to draw attention to themselves. They shouldn't present the gospel of great, rather they should present the gospel of God's grace with clarity, and they should seek to engender charity. The fact that these things rhyme might help us to remember them. Clarity and charity. May you continue to know the blessing of sound ministry in this place, both now and in the future. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.